atonement or to atone. Salvation. What is it? How do I receive it? Why do I need to receive it? But this it? is the will of God, even your sanctification. Shout glory to God, somebody! Welcome to week one of Church Words. We're going to be doing a deep dive into some churchy words that you've likely heard before. Now, you may be able to articulate what they mean. Perhaps maybe you're not sure. Perhaps you've never heard these words before, or you've heard them only from Christians or pastors who yell them from their megaphones while protesting all the terrible things that we sinners do. Whatever your experience with the words atonement, sanctification, and salvation, we're going to put our thinking caps on and see what Jesus might reveal to us over the next few weeks. Today, atonement. The Hebrew word for atonement is kippur. It's where we get the word Yom Kippur, which means the day of atonement. And kippur means two things, to repay a debt and to purify. Now, all Christians agree that Jesus' death and resurrection saves us. And atonement theories ask the question, but how does it save us? How did humankind reconcile with God through Jesus? How does it all work? On Halloween night, 1998, Christian recording artist Carmen did a Christian evangelistic outreach on the Christian TV network, TVN. While all of the pagans were out there trick-or-treating, Carmen did a variety show of drama, song, dance, and gospel presentation. Halloween 316 led over 70,000 people to Christ in one night and did seven times the normal TVN ratings, which as of 2016 was still a record for TVN. And during the performance, Carmen premiered a music video called The Courtroom. And this song slash drama takes place in a heavenly court where Carmen plays all of the major roles. He plays God the Father as judge. He plays the prosecuting attorney, the devil, and also the defense attorney, Jesus, God's son. And when he presents the gospel and wins 70,000 souls, he explains it with a courtroom metaphor. Is that the gospel? Is the courtroom the best we can do to describe the significance of the cross of Christ. The God of the universe bears the sin of mankind, conquers evil, all because of a legal issue? The problem of evil is simply an equation to be solved in a heavenly court of law? I think it's a good metaphor for a part of the gospel, but the good news of Jesus and his atoning sacrifice for the world is bigger and better than a courtroom. The truth is, the Bible uses lots of metaphors and images to describe the atonement of Jesus. And Christians over the past 2,000 years have used lots of metaphors to kind of describe how it all works. And so today, we're going to get historical. We're going to explore some of the historic and dominant ways Christians have spoken about the cross of Jesus throughout history. And maybe, just maybe, we might begin to grasp its significance in a greater way. So stay with me here. We're going to go through some theories, and there's no easy way around this, okay? So get your thinking caps on. We're going to dive right in, okay? First is the ransom theory. This pops up in very early Christianity. And the theory goes that Christ was a ransom that was paid to Satan 
in exchange for releasing humans from the bondage of sin. Uh, Satan had control over humanity since the fall of man, and the soul of only a perfect, innocent Jesus would be acceptable payment for the return of humanity to the Father. But, unbeknownst to the devil, Jesus was also God's son, so after three days, Jesus left hell, returned to heaven to sit at the right hand of God. Jesus, too, escaped the devil's captivity. Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, just as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, you're going to notice that many of these theories really reflect the cultures in which they came from. The idea of Jesus' death that was a, a ransom to the devil might seem a little different to us, but it didn't sound very different if you look at the culture in which it was produced. As one historian notes, it was not uncommon in late antiquity that marauding gangs would roam about capturing travelers and demanding payment for their release. This kind of evil was commonplace in the ancient world. And also in that time period, there was a, a very real sense of the duality between good and evil, right and wrong, the devil and God. But this theory probably gave the devil a little too much power. He's not that strong. Why would God have to pay the devil for anything? So around 1000 AD, Anselm starts a theory called the satisfaction theory. And in this theory, God's infinite honor is offended by our sin. The payment does not need to go to the devil. The payment needs to go to God. And only an infinite payment can settle an infinite debt. And in the time period in which this theory arose, the world of Anselm had a feudal system. It had different classes of people, royalty, the lords and the nobles, and then the peasants, the, the commoners. And if you did something wrong, you offended a person that was above you, you stole, or if you stole from a commoner or a peasant, well, that's one thing. But if you stole or offended a lord, well, that could mean your death. The more noble the person that you offend, the greater reparation needed. And so God is the holiest of holy, the highest of highs. The payment needed must also be the highest of highs. Only a payment from God could satisfy the offense of God. That's the satisfaction theory. 500 years after Anselm's satisfaction theory about the atoning work of Christ, the thinkers of the Reformation, most notably John Calvin, would take it even further. And 500 years ago, we find penal substitutionary atonement, roughly 1500 AD. And to them, it was not that God's honor was offended. It, it was that God, the ultimate judge of the universe, cannot let human sin go unpunished. So in this theory, it wasn't just that God needed payment for sin, God needed punishment for sin. In Anselm's theory, punishment is averted. In penal substitution, punishment is absorbed. Somebody's gotta pay. One theologian says it this way, the father, because of his love, for human beings sent his son who offered himself willingly and gladly to satisfy God's justice so that Christ took the place of sinners 
The punishment and penalty we deserved was laid on Jesus Christ instead of us so that in the cross, both God's holiness and his love are manifested. And notice, this theory arose the same time as the modern day court system arose. Calvin and others used images that are found in the Bible in their understanding of law and order. And it is this theory that Christian recording artist Carmen performed on TVN back on Halloween night, 1998. This is an equation. There's logic. This is enlightenment thinking. The theory has been the dominant understanding of Protestants over the past 500 years. Perhaps you too are familiar with it. It's, this theory has some great positives. It's very good at highlighting the destructive nature of sin at an individual level, but it does not do a good job of drawing attention to sin at a structural or systemic level. Uh, it has a good job of focusing on us being sinners, but not good at looking at what it means to be sinned against or how God is dealing with that in the, our world as well. We are and currently live in the most individualistic culture in the history of mankind. And so it is not surprising that we have adopted an individualist mindset in understanding the cross of Christ. It is an individual transaction between us and God that saves us. And like the theories before it, penal substitutionary atonement has its flaws. French philosopher and ethicist Peter Abelard developed a different theory called the moral influence theory. He arose around 1200 AD, and the moral influence theory of the atonement is where Christ's life, death, and resurrection shows humans the true nature of love and therefore turns them back towards God. Christ then becomes the example of man's best rather than the bearer of man's worst. The work of Christ chiefly consists of demonstrating to the world the amazing depth of God's love for sinful humanity on the cross. In this theory, there is nothing inerrant in God that must be appeased before he is willing to forgive humanity. Now, this theory isn't perfect either. Critics say that this theory doesn't quite answer the question, well, what do we need to be saved from? One theologian described the lack of an answer in this moral influence atonement this way. He says, imagine sitting safely on a pier and in a deck chair when all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a man flings himself into the ocean in front of you and drowns. You later learn that he did this because he loves you. Well, you would probably think this man was a lunatic. But if, on the other hand, you yourself were drowning in the ocean and a man came out to sea to save you. They succeed, but in that he drowns himself. You would understand that, yeah, this, this is love. So perhaps moral influence theory doesn't go far enough. And finally, and I know you got to stick with me here, okay? One more. We have Christus Victor, which is Latin for Christ the conqueror, Christ the victor. This comes from early Christianity, but it becomes more fully developed in the 1800s. And here we have that heaven and earth in a cosmic struggle, locked in a battle between good, which was with God, and evil, which is Satan. Christ was sent into the battle, 
and he triumphs over the elements of darkness in his kingdom. All of us are in the middle of this cosmic war zone. God defeats the devil by tricking him. The devil thinks that killing Christ will give him victory, but he is mistaken. C.S. Lewis alludes to this in the Chronicles of Narnia. In Narnia, the white witch thinks that by killing Aslan on the table that she has won. Satan kills Jesus, but it doesn't stick. In dying, Jesus defeats death by rising from the dead victorious, having defeated Satan, evil, and death, and rescued humanity. Christus Victor. This theory emphasizes the triumph of Jesus over the evil powers of this world. So there you have it. 2,000 years of Christian history on the atonement. Ransom theory, satisfaction theory, penal substitutionary atonement, moral influence theory, Christus Victor, Christ the Conqueror. Now, there are others for sure. There are variations of each of these indeed. And the Bible itself uses lots of metaphors to describe the significance of the atoning work of Jesus. The metaphor or theory isn't the gospel. The gospel is bigger and better than that. We have gone astray when we take a metaphor or a theory of the atonement, and then we say, well, this is the only way to view it, and if you view it differently than me, you're a heretic. No, Christ's death and resurrection should bring us together, not tear us apart. The atonement is this multi-dimensional event that we can look at at all different sides and in lots of different ways. It is a 360 degree kind of thing. Now you are familiar with a selfie. Selfies are so commonplace that now there are selfie stations at all kinds of events. Uh, my nieces went to go see Taylor Swift two weeks ago and in their hotel, they had a 360 degree selfie station. Have you seen these before? The camera doesn't just take a still photo of you. It goes 360 degrees around you and gets every single angle. Perhaps that's what all of these atonement theories do. One metaphor cannot completely capture the cosmic redeeming work of Jesus. We must walk around the cross and we must contemplate it from every angle. One thing that the Bible is very clear on, is that Jesus shows us who God is. And God is very different from all the other gods in the ancient world. Here's a photo of the Egyptian god Ra, the most powerful god in Egypt. The body of a man, the head of a falcon. Here's the Babylonian god Marduk, the most powerful god of Babylon. He created all things through chaos and violence. Here's a picture of Ahura Mazda, the god of the Persian Empire. And then we have Zeus, the god of the Greek pantheon, often depicted with a lightning bolt. And then the Roman gods. Now, the Romans weren't very creative. They just took the Greek gods and then gave them different names. Zeus is now Jupiter. Notice, if you're watching this online, that all of these gods have a weapon. The gods of the ancient world, they rule like the kings of the ancient world, through violence and through power. And then the one true God shows up in Jesus of Nazareth, not in a palace, but as a baby in Bethlehem. 
Now, if you are watching this online, notice that all of these gods have a weapon. The gods of the ancient world rule like the kings of the ancient world, through violence, through power. And then the one true God shows up in Jesus of Nazareth, not in a palace, but as a baby in Bethlehem. And he enters the city of Jerusalem, not on a war horse or a chariot of fire, but humble on a donkey. And this king does not kill, but is killed. This king does not seek revenge, but seeks forgiveness. All those other gods have some kind of weapon, not Jesus. No, he has nails. And they're not in his hands, they're in his hands. So Jesus' death isn't just a simple equation that gives us heaven. It's so much more than that. It doesn't mean just one thing. It means everything. Here are 13 things that the cross does, and this is by no means exhaustive. It is the pinnacle of divine self-disclosure. It is the divine solidarity with all human suffering. It is the eternal moment of forgiveness. It is the enduring model of discipleship. It is the coronation of the world's true king. It is the point in which Satan is driven out of this world. It is the beauty that saves the world. It is the axis of love that changes the world. It is the supreme demonstration of God's love. It is the sacrifice that ends sacrifice. It is the abolition of war and violence. It is the infinite shaming of the principalities and powers, and it is the death by which death itself is conquered. The cross is more than that, but it is not less. I want to end our time together by changing scenes here a bit, and we're going to be doing the gospel in chairs, a visual representation of the good news of Jesus. And I'm going to present it two times. The first time I do it, it will be in a way that is probably very familiar to you. And then the second time I present it, it will be in a way that I'll make some changes that I think better reflect the Bible's teaching on the atonement and of the gospel itself. Are you ready? Okay. In the beginning, God created the world, the heavens and the earth. And then he created man in his image and his likeness. And God desired nothing else than to be face-to-face -face in perfect relationship with his image bearers. But love necessitates choice. And God gave us a real choice on whether or not we wanted to remain close to him or not. He did not create robots with no ability to choose. And so we chose to turn our backs on God and go our own way. We see this in Adam and Eve. We see this in the violence of Cain and Abel in Genesis 4. And we have seen this in generation after generation. We chose sin. And God, who is not only love and uh, compassion, he's also holy, just, and righteous and wrathful. And God is too holy and too pure to look upon our sin, so he turns his back on us. And now we are under the condemnation of a holy God. But God is not just holy. He desires relationship with us. He's always desired relationship with us. And so he sent Jesus to become one of us. He took on our flesh. He showed us what a perfect human life could look like. And on the cross, 
He took our sin. And in so doing, he took on the wrath of a holy God who turned his back on his son. And so on the cross, Jesus took on the sins of the world and the wrath of the Father and died and then rose from the dead. And Jesus not only changes our hearts to God, but Jesus also changes the Father's hearts back to us because God vented his wrath on Christ and now he can relate to us in mercy. Round one of the gospel in chairs. Do you recognize this story? For my first decade of the Christian life for me, it was the only thing I knew. I think that we can do better in round two. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he created mankind in his likeness. And God desired nothing else, nothing more, than to be in close relationship, face-to-face -face with his image bearers. But love necessitates choice. And God gave us the real choice on whether or not we would remain close to him in intimate relationship or not. He did not create robots with no ability to choose. And we chose to turn our back on God and go our own way. And so in Adam and in Eve, and in Cain and in Abel, and in generation after generation, we chose sin. And when we made that choice, God pursued us. He came looking for Adam. He came looking for Cain after he killed Abel. He pursued his people. And then when we turned our backs on him again and said, God said, I'm going to give you laws to instructions on my holiness. And then we turned our backs on him again, and we said, no, thank you. And God said, I'm going to send prophets uh, that will call you back to me. And we said, no. And then God said, I will be your king. And we said, no, we want to be like all the other powerful nations around us. And when we lost ourselves in violence and power and sin, God said, I will put you into captivity so that you will realize that power and wealth and influence isn't where real life can be found. And we said no. And God kept coming back to us again and again, and we kept turning away. And then God sent Jesus. And Jesus taught us about how everyone had value. He taught us to love everyone, including our enemies. He pursued those who nobody on earth were pursuing. He had a special heart for the poor, the down and out, the sinners. You see, in this more biblical way, God is never turning his back on humanity. God is perfectly revealed in Jesus. In the scriptures, when do we ever see Jesus turning away from sinners? When do we see Jesus saying, I'm too holy to look upon your sin? We never see Jesus turning his back and saying, I'm too holy. In fact, it was the Pharisees that did that. The religious people were the ones saying, I'm too holy to look upon you. 
And God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. There has never been a time when God wasn't like Jesus. We haven't always known this, but now we do. God has always been the pursuer. And humanity didn't know how to handle Jesus, particularly those with religious power, the ones that were selling water in front of the river. And so we poured our wrath out on God and we crucified him. And the Father reveals the heart of forgiveness and reconciliation through Jesus. And Jesus dies on that cross that first Easter Sunday, and he calls us into relationship with the Father who's been pursuing us since the dawn of creation. This is God's disposition towards you. The gospel is not when we turn our backs on God, that he turns his back on us. No, the gospel is when we turn our backs on God, God continues to fight for us. He continues to fight for you. And he doesn't stop there because he promises not only that God will live with us, but he promises that through his spirit, God will live in us. And together we do life. This is the gospel. This is the good news. And it's so much more than a slogan or an equation. It is the earth-shattering truth that the God of the universe become a man. It shows what God is like and saved us and reconciled the world to himself on that cross 2,000 years ago and overcame sin and death for me, for you, for the entire world. God, I pray that we get a bigger and better, more cosmic understanding, the good news of Jesus. And I pray that that good news changes us. May it change the world around us. In your name, amen. I want to thank you so much for joining us online at Providence Church Fresno. We pray God's peace, grace, love, and mercy on you, your family, and friends this week and beyond. Peace in Ukraine.